listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. There are three passages of scripture I want to turn your attention to this morning quickly. The first one is in the epistle for the day from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a, it's a line we all know. Paul is writing about the cross and what he calls the foolishness of the cross. And in, in the famous line, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness. But I, I don't know that that's true for those of us who've cut our teeth in the church. We've heard so much about the cross that I think the scandal of it, what Paul calls the foolishness of it, is largely lost on us. It's largely um, absorbed by our familiarity with the story of the cross. And so what I want to try to do this morning is restore some of that sense of foolishness some of the kind of counterintuitive, strange, upsetting dimensions of what it means that Christ has died. The other two passages are, are closely related. One is in Isaiah chapter 9, the Old Testament reading for the day, which is a promise that is then taken up in the gospel. So Isaiah 9 says this, But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And then the gospel for the day. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has just suffered his temptation, 40 days in the wilderness. Finally, he's left alone. And then he hears. He hears that John, whom he loves, has been arrested. Matthew 4, 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let's pray. God, I pray that in the next few moments that what needs to be heard will be heard. Holy Spirit, take what I'm saying 
my attempts to say it and make it what some in this room need to hear and hear so that they can hear it as gospel. They can hear it as a word that sets them free, that pushes them and pulls them toward the future you intend for them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in the gospel story, we read that Jesus, having just been tempted, hears the news that John has been arrested and immediately launches his ministry. He hears that John has been taken by Herod, Herod Antipas, and thrown in prison, anticipating what will come of John, which is his beheading and not, not too long. And then Jesus begins his ministry. And I could be wrong, but my, my guess is if you were raised as I've been raised, we tend to hear moments like these at, at the level of God's orchestration, as if John's being arrested simply is a signal to Jesus that now is your time to step to center stage and begin your ministry. And I think we've been conditioned to think about the world in those terms, that even when things are going wrong, even when there is horrific injustice, we've been taught, I think, at least many of us have been taught, to think of what God is doing mysteriously in the midst of all this injustice and to trust that in some hidden way, in some obscure way, God is orchestrating all of these events for good and we don't need to be too troubled by it. But I don't think at all that's the right way to read this story. I don't think at all that Jesus hears the news about John and is untroubled by it and simply recognizes in some kind of abstract way that God is moving and it's time for me to respond. I think Jesus is angered. I think Jesus is troubled by the news that John, who Jesus says is the greatest of all men born of women, that John has been arrested. And I think it is a signal to Jesus, but not a signal that God is sovereignly orchestrating history, but a signal that the world is so broken that even the best of us ends up in prison unjustly. And that the reason Jesus launches his ministry at this moment and not another is that he finally realizes if this can happen to John, it's time that someone does something about, this, about the way the world is. And he immediately moves to Galilee. This was intentional, not just to Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles, as it's called in Isaiah and then in the gospel, but to Capernaum, which is a very small place. I mean, when it, it occupies at most 25 acres at the time. It has probably a few hundred, maybe up to a thousand inhabitants, no public buildings, one synagogue, Jesus moves there in the region, Matthew says, of Zebulun and Naphtali, places that are of no consequence but still ill-reputed. They don't matter much, but they're associated with gloom and oppression. God has made them a, a, a site of mockery. Jesus moves there. It, it's, it's an intentional move that signals what kind of ministry he intends to embody. He doesn't move to Jerusalem, not yet. He doesn't move to Tiberias. He doesn't move to cultural center. He moves to a backwater fishing village. 
Because that place, Matthew tells us, is known to be a place of darkness. It's known to be a place where the broken live, where the rejected live. And he not only moves there and begins his ministry there, but he selects his disciples from that place. He purposely goes to this tiny backwater fishing village where everyone knows no one wants to be, and that's where he lives, and that's the people he wants to associate with, and those are the people he chooses to work with. And I don't know if this is good news for you or bad news, but he's still doing that. This is Capernaum. This, this gathering is a 21st century equivalent of a backwater fishing village, and you and I, whether we like it or not, are 21st century equivalents of fishermen that Jesus has asked to join him. And he does this knowing that this is also the region over which Herod rules, the same Herod who's taken John into prison, the same Herod who will behead John eventually. And Jesus begins his ministry by saying the same thing John had been saying, repent. I, I think we've imagined Jesus as a kind of enforcer for the status quo, as someone who's on the side of law and order, someone who just wants to teach us how to be good citizens. But that's not what this story is about. This is a story about a king that Jesus later calls a fox, which is an insult. It's not doesn't mean that Herod was hot. <laughs> he insults Herod. When he comes face to face with Herod at the end of the story, he doesn't even speak to Herod in response when Herod mocks him and asks for a miracle because Jesus is embodying before Herod a judgment that he doesn't answer to Herod, Herod answers to him. Jesus moves to Capernaum after hearing about John because he means to overthrow the rule that brought John into prison, not because he wants to reinforce it as if it's something God has orchestrated. Jesus is not an enforcer for the status quo. Jesus is not on the side of law and order. Jesus is a troubled, troubling presence. If you, if you read the Gospels and you read them closely, you realize that all of Jesus' life is a story of trouble. When he's born, what happens? Herod hears that he's been born, is threatened by it, and slaughters the innocents. And Jesus is forced with his family to flee. At 12 years old, he's trouble for his family and trouble for all the people that he encounters in the temple. When he comes to be baptized, he comes to be baptized by a radical that everybody knows is a radical, John the Baptist. And then not only is baptized by him, showing his, his alignment with him, but when John is arrested, he immediately begins to take up John's message. I mean, Jesus identifies himself as a follower, in a sense, of John the Baptist, as the fulfillment of John's message at a time which every, in which everybody in the area knows John is an enemy of the state. John is a radical who's been brought in by the king. And Jesus wants everybody to know, that's the man I'm with. That's the message I'm preaching. These are my concerns, and I will continue doing what he started. This is not a man who's going with the flow. 
Jesus' ministry is marked by the disturbances he he causes in the status quo. What he does on the Sabbath confuses everyone. What he allows women to do with him, having conversations with the woman at the well, letting women touch his feet, disturbs everyone. What is Jesus doing? How can he do this? His teachings make no sense. I mean, we've suggested to people that Jesus was a simple teacher. I cannot tell you how many times I've had classes as a student and now attended seminars as a professional in which people say stupid things like, we should be like Jesus and say simple things that everybody understands. Jesus never said anything anybody understood. (laughs) And when he said something they thought they understood, their response was to kill him or to seek to kill him. He wasn't a simple teacher. Nothing could be further from the truth than that. He was a, a kind of insurrectionist in a subtle, unexpected way. He, he evaded taxes. I mean, one of the themes that runs all the way through the story of Jesus is his refusal to pay the temple tax. There's a, there's a great scene also happens in Capernaum where the, the, the authorities in the temple come to Peter and they say, hey, why, why doesn't your rabbi, why doesn't he pay tax to the temple? And Peter's really troubled by it because Peter wants to go with the flow. Peter wants to be accepted by the law and order establishment. And so Peter goes to Jesus and says, hey, why aren't we paying temple tax? And Jesus said, do you want to do that? Here's what you can do. Go fishing. And when you catch a fish, there will be a coin in his mouth. And if you want to, you can give that coin to the temple. Now, that's absurd. What is happening? This is what's happening. Jesus is saying, it's fine for you to give to the temple tax, but it's not coming from money that matters to us. If you find some money in a fish's mouth, go right ahead and give it to the temple. Otherwise, no. That's not an enforcer for the establishment. That's, he, he's some kind of outlaw. I mean, after all, he gets killed for all of this. I mean, the way we tell Jesus' story, you would think he would have been given some kind of medal. That the end of his life would have been Pilate and Caiaphas and Herod all gathered around him and saying, this is a model citizen. But in fact, they all gather around him and say, this man must be killed. And again, we can't, we can't feel the force of that truth because we're thinking about how God mysteriously is orchestrating everything for his purposes. And instead of seeing the blatant injustice that Jesus directly confronts, we abstract away from all of that, from the injustice and the prophetic, to some vague notion of sovereignty in which God is making everything that happens happen. And what that does is it leaves us as people who can't engage the world truthfully. Because no matter what goes wrong, we've been taught to think, well, somehow that's God's will. And I'm supposed to accept God's will and submit to it. I'm supposed to be a good citizen. I'm supposed to be a person who follows the laws and keeps proper order. I'm supposed to stay in my lane. But that's not the message of the cross. That's not the message of Jesus. That's not who he is, what he did, and what he calls us to do. Just this past week or the week before, I more or less stumbled onto a report. It's, it's not the right name for it, but a report by an Assemblies of God minister 
who attended Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral and then wrote a short three-page article about it. Easily one of the most disturbing things I've ever read in my life. I think about it a lot since I've read it. There's so much about it that was disturbing. One is he doesn't go to the funeral as a mourner. He goes, he says, as a reporter, even though he admits he's not a reporter. He can't even step, he has, he's got to create some sense of objectivity, some, some distance from the reality. He makes it clear very early on that he disagrees with Dr. King's notion of civil disobedience because, and I quote, the Bible makes it clear we must always obey the laws of the land. What Bible is he reading? I mean, you realize Israel's story is impossible. The story of the Exodus is impossible if it isn't for two midwives, midwives who disobey Pharaoh and lie to his face about it. It isn't possible if Pharaoh's daughter doesn't break the laws of her own land and take Moses into her house and raise him. There is no Moses, there is no Exodus if there aren't people like Shifra and Pua and Pharaoh's daughter who disobey the law in order to do what is right. There is no church if the apostles don't do the same thing. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit falls upon them. Acts chapter 3, they bring a man from the gate beautiful into the temple. He had been lame, now he's leaping and rejoicing. And the authorities say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And the apostles say, we ought to obey God rather than human beings. There would be no Israel, there would be no church if, there weren't for, if it wasn't for men and women who say we will do what God wills, not what anyone else tells us to do if it subverts what God wills. And yet this Assemblies of God minister at MLK's funeral says we know the Bible tells us we always have to obey the laws of the land. But that's probably the highlight of the article. That's, that's when it's least offensive and least troubling. He says he gets back in his car to head home, and God puts a scripture into his mind. Now, if we had time this morning, and we don't, I'm rushing, but if, I had, if we had time, I'd like for you to try to guess which scripture God put into his mind. <laughs> Turns out it's from 1 Timothy, and it reads like this. Let slaves be subject to their masters so that God's name is not blasphemed. An Assemblies of God minister, a Pentecostal like me, goes to MLK's funeral, and the verse God gives him, put that in scare quotes, please, the verse God gives him is, slaves obey masters. He then goes on to reflect on what this means. What is God saying to me? And determines that... White people can no longer serve black people. They can no longer minister to them directly because black people are too put off by the failures of white people. He, at this point in the article, very intentionally refers to other people's failures, not his own. And so he concludes that we need to find ways to support black ministers who can teach these black Christians not to be rebellious because we hate the violence that their racial unrest is creating. Not the 500 years of slavery. Not lynching under Jim Crow. We hate the violence of riots. We just can't stand the lawlessness. As long as the law is that blacks can't sit with whites or drink from the same water fountain, we have no problem with the law. 
As long as the law is you can't be in this town after sundown, we have no trouble with the law. But when you break the window out of the department store, now we are law and order people. And this wasn't just some Yahoo posting this to his Facebook wall. This was an Assemblies of God pastor in one of the largest churches in Atlanta who gets his report published in the denominational magazine. But the truth is, I feel sorry for the man because he is just saying what all of us have been taught to say. He's just stupid enough to say out loud what many of us think to ourselves. And it, if, I, if I had time, we would trace some of the history. Some of it goes back to the Protestant Reformation, specifically in England, where there was a push toward reestablishing civil authority over against papal authority. And you have a work like William Tyndale's The Obedience of a Christian Man, in which he, he says everything depends upon people obeying authorities. Everything depends on it. And then he lists these orders. Children must obey parents as if their parents were God. Wives must obey husbands as if their husbands were God. Husbands and wives and children must obey magistrates as if magistrates were God. And magistrates must obey kings as if kings were God. And he says, at no point can anyone who is under authority challenge the authority of the person who's over them without also challenging God. Everything depends upon submission. So he says to the children, no matter if your parents wrong you, you cannot resist them. If you resist them, God will not forgive your sins until you have made it right with your parents. And works that logic all the way through. When he comes to magistrates, he says this, we know that there are unjust magistrates. We know that there are judges who condemn and kill people who are innocent. But we don't worry because we know that everything that happens in the world happens by the will of God. And if someone is killed, even though they were innocent, we know it's because God sovereignly saw that they were lying or manipulating or had failed to honor their parents. And God, through the wickedness of the ruler, accomplishes his righteous judgment. We came by this naturally. We've been taught to think that when John is sent to prison, we're supposed to sit back and think, somehow this is God's will. But injustice is never the will of God. And the right response is to call injustice injustice and do everything within our power to change it and make it right to do it in the right spirit, to do it in the spirit of Jesus, which is not a spirit of happy-go-lucky, happy-go-lucky, naive, sentimental, feel-good. It's a spirit of the truth matters, justice matters, people matter, and I won't stand by and see the truth destroyed and justice undermined and people devoured without saying and doing something about it. That's why Jesus gets killed. Because he saw what was happening and he did something about it. He moved to Capernaum. He identified himself with John the Baptist. He healed on the Sabbath day. He refused to pay the temple tax. And when at the end of his ministry he comes to, the, comes to Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple. <clears throat> 
He drives everyone out and takes center stage and refuses to let anyone come through. And that's what leads to the question, what do we do with this coin that you've shown us? This coin with Caesar's face on it. And Jesus famously says, what does he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And we've been raised to think that that means there are some parts of our life that belong to Caesar and there are some parts of our life that belong to God. But that is not at all the way that Jesus' audience heard the words because they are disturbed by it. They don't go away thinking, well, it doesn't matter how I vote. It doesn't matter what kind of politician I support. It doesn't matter whether or not I'm involved in issues of justice around me. Caesar's world is one thing and God's world is another. No, what they heard is Jesus saying, if Caesar made it, like he made this coin, give it back to him. Everything else belongs to God. Now think about what that means. In an econ- we, we live in a moneyed economy. But in, in the ancient world, there wasn't a lot of coin. Mostly, they're trading goods, lambs and apples, pomegranates and oxen. Oxen is a fun word to say, by the way. <laughs> Turtle doves, also fun to say. <laughs> they're, they're trading goods, and none of that has Caesar's face on it. The wheat, the sea, the land, the sky... The sun, none of that has Caesar's face on it. Your neighbor doesn't have Caesar's face on him or her. Caesar has almost nothing in my life. All he has is this coin he made. Well, I'll give it back to him. Everything else is God's. And you wonder why they killed him? You're about to kill me. (laughs) They kill him for it. And here's where all of this teaching we've received is at its most perverse because we've turned the death of Jesus somehow into the will of God. We've turned the greatest injustice imaginable into somehow a machination of a God we say is just. If it, was a tr- if it was a tragedy for the greatest man born of woman to be arrested, how much greater is it for God to be arrested? God came among us, and when God lived his life among us, we responded by arresting him, torturing him, and killing him. Not because he was a model citizen, not because he was a supporter of the establishment, but because he threatened the world as we know it. That's the foolishness of the cross. I want you to think for just a moment. I really am almost done. I want you to think for just a moment about the ways in which we talk about people bearing their cross. The cross was not an act of submission. Jesus was not obeying the Father. He was obeying the Father, sure. That's what got him killed. Being killed was not what the Father required of him. Justice is what the Father required of him. And when you live justice, you will be killed for it. Jesus is not on the cross because God wills him to be there. Jesus is on the cross because if you live God's will, that's where you end up. 
because this world is not right. This is a world in which John goes to prison and God dies on a cross. This is a world in which if you love, you will suffer for it. Jesus tells his disciples that. And, and think about this. How many times have you heard some version of, if we just love one another, everybody would know that that's what they want. But Jesus says, if you love one another, as I've taught you to love one another, the world will hate you as it hates me. Because loving one another is about moving to Capernaum. It's about choosing to live with people from backwater towns who live in darkness. And if you do that, everybody who has a stake in the establishment recognizes you rightly as an enemy. And somehow, we've preached the message of the cross as a message of, if there are things that are difficult in your life, bear them, because ultimately they're God's will. I mean, we hear stories like the story that Gretchen and Joseph and Danny and Lady shared with us this morning, and bearing the cross has been turned into, so you have anxiety and depression? Somehow God has a plan. Bear it. So your husband is abusive? Somehow God has a plan. Submit, because that's what the cross is about. If you don't think that's the logic, ask women who've been raised and cared for in church who have abusive spouses and how many times they've heard from their pastors, this is just the way God has made it. You have to bear it. But bearing your cross is not about you submitting to injustice it's not about you grinning and bearing because God has some larger plan. Bearing the cross is about taking up other people's suffering as your own. Jesus' cross is my cross he bore for me. The cross is redemptive because Jesus allows the powers to do to him what the powers of evil are doing to all of us so that he can break them. He's obeying God even to the point of death because through God's will, justice will break the power of death. This is why Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness, but it is power. Because if you recognize that bearing your cross is not about you coming to terms with injustice and bearing it, but about you recognizing someone else's suffering and sharing in it, that's the way in which we change the world. Think about the difference between Someone saying to Gretchen, yes, you have anxiety and depression, but somehow God has a plan. Bear it. And God's saying to me, Gretchen is suffering. Carry her. That's bearing the cross. Jesus moves to Capernaum, lives in the land of Naphtali, precisely because that's the place where the darkness is. And if the light of God is in you, you are drawn to darkness. If the life of God is in you, you are drawn to the dying. If the goodness of God is in you, you are drawn to those who are suffering. Because bearing your cross is not about accepting some injustice that God is using for some greater good. It's about fighting injustice by bringing the goodness of God to bear in someone's life. The cross is not a symbol of submission. It's a symbol of protest against every evil that would try to dominate you. Amen. The cross is not a symbol of you having to deal with it. The cross is a symbol that God will be with you no matter what you're dealing with. 
the service will come. I wasn't sure I'd survive this long, but here I am. Now, there you are. I, I hope you don't read my, misread my intensity. I'm not angry with you. I'm angry about what we've been told. It's not your fault. It's not the fault of that Assemblies of God minister. It's just the devil has sown a lie into our teaching that runs through almost everything we say. And it's caused us to be people who think that suffering and brokenness and injustice are somehow mysteriously God's work and we just have to accept it. And that means when we see something wrong in the world, instead of rushing to it like Jesus did, we just sit back, grieve it, lament it, but accept it. And what I want to insist upon with all of, all of my guts is that that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is when you see an injustice, rush to carry somebody's cross. Move to Capernaum. Go to the places of darkness. That's where the light dawns. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.